We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. And away we go, episode 118 of the Al Galdi podcast. It is Monday, August 9th, 2021. We are in the midst of a game week for the Washington football team. Can you feel it? Is the air that you're breathing a little different? Is your mindset altered just a little bit? Uh, we have a game, a Washington football team game in just a few days, albeit a preseason game, but still a game. Uh, Washington at the New England Patriots Thursday night at 7.30 as we get closer and closer to Washington's regular season opener, September 12th, not that far away. Hello and welcome to another installment of the Al Galdi podcast, another week of the Al Galdi podcast, the only DC sports podcast for which there is a new episode each weekday by 5 a.m. Monday through Friday. I hope you had a nice weekend. A big boo on masks being back, at least where I live, Montgomery County. Uh, boy, was that a buzzkill, being at the gym on Saturday and Sunday, having to wear a mask. Uh, that was such a great symbolic moment a few weeks ago. The first workout at a gym in forever without a mask. That was so liberating. That was so refreshing. That was so new. That was like, wow, we're finally coming out of this COVID-19 pandemic. And now we're back to the mask mandate. Montgomery County, Maryland, a.k.a. MoCo, reinstating its indoor mask mandate for just after midnight Saturday. I know that's happening in a lot of places right now. We were supposed to be done with these dopey masks, uh, which more and more appear to not even work that well. It's like you're trying to understand the changing information in this pandemic on a day-in, day-out basis. But hey, I'm a good boy, okay? I wore my mask. I will wear my mask. Like Jim Zorn said in 2009 when Dan Snyder and Vinny Serrato hired Sherm Lewis as offensive consultant. Do you remember that? Sherm Lewis, the bingo caller was hired to be Washington's offensive consultant to, to, to Jim Zorn in 2009. 
Uh, I will comply. That's what Zorni said back in 09. That's what I'm saying in 2021. I will comply uh, with the reinstated mask mandate in my neck of the woods, MoCo. Anyway, I hope you are healthy. I hope you are well. And uh, let us talk sports on this Monday installment of the pod. So much to get into on this show on the Washington football team. Is it time to be worried about Curtis Samuel, who still has not practiced in training camp? Uh, Ron Rivera at his post-practice press conference on Sunday said something uh, that is perhaps reason uh, for worry when it comes to Samuel. We'll talk about that coming up next segment. Also, we had Friday night football at FedEx Field over the weekend. A well-received practice open to the public, both Ron and Ryan Fitzpatrick said things on Friday night that are worth discussing. Discuss them, we shall. The Wizards, their five-team mega trade is official. It turns out that the Wiz kept all three of the players who the Wizards got back from the Los Angeles Lakers. The Wizards certainly are a deeper team with those guys, with Spencer Dinwiddie, but are the Wizards a better team? I want to get into that and much more with the Wiz off the five-team trade. The Wiz, by the way, dealing with a COVID-19 situation of their own right now. Their summer league game for Sunday night got postponed. I will talk Nationals as they lost two or three at the Atlanta Braves over the weekend. Included in that series, a terrific start by Josiah Gray on Saturday night. Also included in that series, another bad start for Patrick Corbin. And how about what Ryan Zimmerman said about Corbin after Sunday's loss? I have a uh, few things to say about that. I will talk Orioles as well. Boy, did they get smashed by the American League leading Tampa Bay Rays at Oriole Park at Camden Yards over the weekend. A vicious, a vile three-game sweep, although there were some bright spots for the O's, believe it or not. Multiple young building blocks had good series. That's what matters for the rebuilding and tanking Orioles. This, to me, is the way to look at the Nationals right now. What are the potential building blocks doing? Uh, The Orioles had multiple potential building blocks do quite well. Uh, Some good stuff from Austin Hayes and Cedric Mullins. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com, including if you would like to become a sponsor of the Al Galdi podcast, if you would like for the power of the pod to work for you to grow your business or practice, uh, especially as we approach football season, hit us up, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. You get bang for your buck when you advertise in podcasting. Email from Josh off our conversation on last Thursday's show, episode 116, about the Washington football team banning Native American-inspired ceremonial headdresses and face paint at FedEx Field. And would the team ever ban Redskins gear? Writes Josh, I'm not a season ticket holder, but I typically attend almost every game. I sit everywhere at FedEx from the 400s to the dream seats. I have typically only seen two people at games wearing Native American headdresses. One guy typically sits in the way back of Section 139. The other person who I've seen is in the lower level in between sections 110 and 113. I was able to snag a ticket to the one home game with fans against the Giants last year. Before I went to the game, I reached out to a ticket representative from the team and asked about wearing paraphernalia to the game, and she said I would not be turned away for wearing it. She also told me that they would not be playing the fight song, which they did not. After the WFT scored, Twisted Sisters, we're not going to take it, played. I really hope they just end up changing the words of the song to hail to Washington. Uh, You know what? That will be interesting. What song is played after Washington touchdowns at FedEx Field this coming season? I would almost guarantee you that the song will not be hail to the Redskins or some version 
of Hail to the Redskins because if you say just alter the song to Hail to Washington, people will still be singing Hail to the Redskins and there will be a big to-do about that. So I would imagine you get something similar to what we had last season. I don't know that we go with Twisted Sisters. We're not going to take it. Uh, I'm not quite sure why that song was selected. Uh, but uh, I don't think we're going to be hearing Hail to the Redskins. I would be surprised anyway. I'll say that. I would be uh, surprised. Email from Andrew Sly regarding our Dan Snyder discussion on Friday's show, episode 117, off Forbes valuing the Washington football team at $4.2 billion, number five in the NFL. Writes Andrew, great synopsis of the Danny's ownership slash Forbes article. Not going to lie, I can't stand the guy, but all this winning off the field is starting to make me respect the man. The only thing left is a full heel turn. So if we're going to do the wrestling analogy, uh, you could argue that Danny Boy turned heel years ago, okay? I mean, I, I don't know that he's some, uh, you know, 1980s Hulk Hogan-style babyface here or Steve Austin 1990s-style babyface uh, <laughs> in terms of how he's viewed. You know, he's more Vince McMahon in the 1990s, the ultimate heel, the corporate heel, and he's probably walking around right now like Vince. He's probably, Danny, is doing that Vince strut right now off all of the wins for Danny Boy so far in this calendar year of 2021. But yeah, he does keep winning. I mean, that is undeniable. Like I said, you don't have to like it, but you're being naive if you don't acknowledge it. Dan Snyder keeps winning so far this year. Now, you know, he doesn't win games, okay? That's what we care about the most, actually win some games. Uh, Hasn't won nearly enough games over the last 20 plus years. But uh, Danny, as you said, Andrew, uh, does keep winning off the field. We're winning off the field? Yes, Brucifer, winning off the field. Well, you know what else constitutes winning off the field? Going to see Dr. George Verghese. Uh, Dr. Verghese, the medical director for the Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland. He is a board-certified dermatologist and Mohs surgeon. Skin health, as you surely know, matters a lot. The Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland focuses on medical dermatology and skin cancer diagnosis and comprehensive care including something very special and cutting edge, superficial radiation therapy, or SRT. So SRT is an alternative to surgical procedures for basal cell and squamous cell skin cancers. SRT really is revolutionary. It's a non-surgical skin cancer treatment that's safe and effective. You see, having skin cancer doesn't mean having to have surgery and the downtime and side effects that go with surgery. You have options. Understand that a non-surgical option in SRT is available. Dr. George Verghese in the Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland offer SRT unlike many other dermatology practices in the area, and SRT is covered by most insurances. If you or someone you know is dealing with skin cancer, first of all, we hope that you or that someone you know is doing well. But second of all, understand that there are options. To find out more, contact Dr. George Verghese and the Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland. The phone number is 301-396-3401. Make sure you tell them that Al Galdi sent you. That phone number again is 301-396-3401. Dr. George Verghese is excellent at what he does. He's a big Washington football team fan. He's a big listener of this podcast. You can also check him out online by going to midatlanticskin.com. That's midatlanticskin.com. Dr. George Verghese in the Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland, nationally recognized for treating skin cancer across the Mid-Atlantic region.
All right, so like I said near the top of the show, big week for the Washington football team this week as Washington's first preseason game is this week. We shift this week from just training camp practices to training camp practices and a preseason game. Washington is at the New England Patriots on Thursday night at 7.30. The first of three preseason games for Washington. This is a new era for the NFL, right? Each team with three preseason games and 17 regular season games each season, unless that team plays in the Hall of Fame game. So preseason game number two for Washington is against the Cincinnati Bengals at FedEx Field Friday night, August 20th at 8. Preseason game number three for Washington is against the Baltimore Ravens at FedEx Field Saturday evening, August 28th at 6. Ron Rivera at his post-practice press conference on Sunday on whether having just three preseason games this year will change how much he plays starters in each game, including this first game on Thursday night. We're going to play our guys on Thursday. I'll tell you that right now. I mean, you know, it's a great opportunity. Um, it's against a good, very good football team, well coached. So I'm excited about that potential. Um, I think that, uh, you know, having the three games and then having a two-week prep period for the, for, the, for the first game, you know, it's going to behoove us to play the guys a little bit more. At least that's my opinion. Yeah, the schedule going into the regular season is interesting. Washington's third and final preseason game is against the Ravens at FedEx Field Saturday evening, August 28th. That's more than two weeks prior to Washington's regular season opener, which is against the Los Angeles Chargers at FedEx Field on Sunday afternoon, September 12th at 1. So more than two weeks between the end of Washington's preseason and the start of Washington's regular season. Ron on Sunday then got asked how much he ideally would like to play Ryan Fitzpatrick at the Pats on Thursday night. Ideally, play him enough. And that's, that's probably the biggest thing. But, you know, you, you're looking for is the command, the command of the offense, the command of what's going on in the field, um, and I think the respect of his teammates when he's on the field. So that, that's what we're really looking for. We want some su- success, obviously. But the truth of the matter is, you know, the, the, those things all come with time. Uh, this will be our first exposure, his first exposure, um, you know, as our as our as our first quarterback out there right now. All right, I like that answer from Ron. I like that answer from Don Ron. How much Ron would you ideally like to play Ryan Fitzpatrick on Thursday night? Quote: Ideally, play him enough. End quote. Ideally, play him enough. Yeah, ideally enough. There you go. There's your answer, okay? You want to know how much ideally I'm going to play my starting quarterback? Ideally enough. There you go, all right? Mind your own business, media boy. Uh, When it comes to Ryan Fitzpatrick in training camp so far, in what ways has Ron seen Fitzpatrick improve? Well, I think his his decision-making within within the schemes. You know, there are some things that we do a little bit different from what he's done in the past. Um, there's some things that are very similar. The very similar things you see, it's very second nature, very easy. Uh, as he starts getting to some of the new ideas, uh, some of the new scheming, um, you see him now grasping those things, being, feeling more and more comfortable. And then his rapport with his teammates uh, on both sides of the ball, that, that's, that's just getting stronger and stronger right now. All right. What about Washington's other quarterback in the quarterback competition, which, by the way, we're not hearing that much about these days, uh, Taylor Heineke. So the reviews of Heineke in training camp practice have been mixed, i.e. he's been mixed. He's looked good at times, but he's also thrown some interceptions. Uh, With those picks in mind, here was Ron on Sunday on Heineke. Well, I think part of it is, you know, a big part of his game is, is, is moving outside the pocket. And when you're limited in terms of, you know, what we're doing there, sometimes you stick in there a little bit longer than you really should. Sometimes you try to force the ball when you don't need to. 
Um, and I think that that's part of it right now. I mean, I'm not I'm not overly concerned. What I'm you know interested in is just seeing how he responds when 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 we play the preseason games uh, to assess it then. Yeah, and that's the thing with Taylor Heineke. His game is such, his style is such that he's maybe not ever going to be a great practice player. The value of Taylor Heineke is in games, the improvisational skills, the moxie, you know, in the moment to be able to evade a pass rusher and throw while on the run, you know, the ability to generate an explosive play on an off schedule play, those types of things. Like that really is the value of Taylor Heineke. If this quarterback competition, to whatever extent it exists, is only about, well, who knows X's and O's better or who operates a practice better. I mean, Ryan Fitzpatrick is going to win hands down. Ryan Fitzpatrick is going into his 17th season. He's played on a million different teams. Like definitely Fitzpatrick is going to win. If in fact Ron is open-minded to Taylor Heineke as Washington's starting quarterback, and it's debatable whether Ron is, but if Ron is, the value of Heineke will be on display in these preseason games. So we have Fitzpatrick, we have Heineke, We still do not have Kyle Allen practicing. He tweaked his surgically repaired left ankle now two Saturdays ago. We're at a point now at which I'm not sure if it's still accurate to call what happened to him a tweak. I mean, a tweak is usually something that nags you for a few days. This is now a week plus that Kyle Allen has been out. Uh, Also still not practicing is Curtis Samuel. So the Washington football team on day one of training camp, July 27th, play Samuel on the active, physically unable to perform list due to a groin injury that had kept Samuel from practicing during the mandatory minicamp in June. Then we had the Washington football team on July 29th, placing Samuel on the reserve COVID-19 list. He is still on that list. Ron on Sunday on Samuel. Well, I just think he's got to continue getting in football shape. I mean, you, know, you, you missed the first two weeks, and it's really tough to catch back up to everybody. But we're hoping, you know, by the time we get ready to play, he's ready to roll, and he'll get opportunities because we'll roll him around. And he's going he's gonna to work on both sides as well. He'll work the left side and the right side. And later in Ron's post-practice press conference came the following question. Is there a timetable for Samuel's return? How about Ron's answer? There's no timetable for Curtis. You know, he's been in the system. He knows it. Um, yeah, you'd love him to have, catch a few reps maybe at the last preseason game. But we're not going to rush him out there. He, he's, he's, you know, he's coming back. You know, he'll be healthy. He'll be ready to roll. Uh, but we're going to ease him back into it, you know, because, again, he knows the system. He'll pick it up again very, very quickly. Uh, it'll really be about him building his rapport uh, with the quarterbacks. Yeah, so Ron Rivera saying that there is no timetable for Curtis Samuel's return. Uh, that doesn't sound overly encouraging, does it? And that raises multiple questions. Is there no timetable because of Samuel's groin injury or because of Samuel's COVID-19 situation? If the reason is the groin injury, exactly how bad is this groin injury? If the reason is his COVID-19 situation, and pretty clearly at this point, he tested positive for COVID-19 because if he was just a close contact, you figure he would have been off that reserve COVID-19 list by now. So did Samuel get a bad case of COVID-19? Is he one of the rare athletes who has been severely impacted by COVID-19? I mean, most athletes who have gotten COVID-19 have been just fine. But not all of them have been just fine. You know, like Freddie Freeman of the Atlanta Braves was not just fine when he got COVID-19 last year. We don't know. We just don't know. Whatever the case, Curtis Samuel is a big deal. Washington needs Curtis Samuel 
for this coming season. Washington gave Curtis Samuel a nice free agent contract this past March, three-year, $34.5 million deal with $21.5 million fully guaranteed at signing. Samuel in the 2020 regular season was terrific for the Carolina Panthers. He had a career best season, 77 receptions for 851 yards and three touchdowns on 97 targets over 15 games. He is a burner. Uh, Curtis Samuel of the 2017 NFL Scouting Combine ran a 4-3-1-40. And yes, Curtis Samuel offers position flex. Position flex. Yes, Ron, position flex. Curtis Samuel over his four NFL regular seasons has 72 carries for 478 yards and five touchdowns. That's 6.64 yards per carry. Curtis Samuel, in case you don't know, was a running back at Ohio State. Speaking of maybe Rod Rivera's favorite thing on the planet, position flex, uh, one of the great supporters of this podcast, John Grandlin of Real Broker, aka John G, is the OG of something called commission flex, flexible commission rates. And so if you need to sell your home and aren't sure to whom to turn, if you've been trying to sell your home and you're not satisfied with how things are going, if you're even just thinking about selling your home, contact John Grandlin and see what he and his commission flex can do for you. When you think Ron Rivera, you think position flex. When you think John Granlin, think commission flex. Position flex. Yes, Ron, you have position flex. John G has commission flex. What exactly is commission flex? Well, like I said, commission flex is flexible commission rates. Not every house requires the same amount of work or money spent marketing. So why should you pay the same commissions? It doesn't make sense. It's never made sense. John Granlin is changing the game flexible commission rates. When you work with John Granlin, he puts a marketing plan together for you that will maximize your home's value and help you keep more of your hard-earned equity in your pocket. You see, John Granlin has a menu of commission packages that you can choose from, including, by the way, selling your home for free. Yeah, you heard that right. For free, zero commission. Some conditions do apply. But interviewing John Granlin is an absolute no-brainer. He can come by your house and give you a step-by-step plan on what to do to get top dollar, and maybe even more importantly, what not to do so you don't spend needlessly and there is never any obligation to list or sell. Do yourself a favor and call John Grandlin. This is a phone call that literally could make you tens of thousands of dollars, perhaps save you tens of thousands of dollars. Call John Grandlin now at 703 537 67 47. Make sure you tell him that Al Galdi sent you and make sure that you ask John Granlin about what you keep hearing about on the Al Galdi podcast, The Commission Flex. That phone number again is 703-537-6747. You can also check out John Granlin online at johngsellsforfree.com. That's johngsellsforfree.com. John Granlin, nobody will do a better job of selling your home. And remember, John G., is the OG of Commission Flex. Position Flex. Yes, Ron, just like Position Flex. So we on Friday night had Friday night football at FedEx Field. The Washington football team on Friday night held a practice at FedEx Field open to the public. This was a good idea by the team. Admission was free. Friday night, feel-good atmosphere, a public relations layup. Ron Rivera at his post-practice press conference on Friday night on what stood out to him in terms of how Washington's younger players reacted to practicing at FedEx Field with fans. Well, the energy level, first of all, you, you, you walk into a, a, 
you know, uh, an NFL stadium, and, and, and you've got fans in the stands, which is really cool to have, uh, especially after last year, to have that many folks here already. Uh, that was cool. And uh, a couple of the young guys that, that played some of the smaller schools did say, you know, this is a lot of people. Um, and I said, well, the goal is to get even more. And, and that's what I'm hoping is that we can, you know, we can, we can give uh, our fans a reason to come out and cheer for us. So it was good to have them there. Um, it was really kind of neat to, to watch some of these guys react. And, you know, you can see some of the energy. You really could. And, and it was, uh, and some of the guys fed off it. And that's what we're looking for. Yeah, make no mistake about it. The Washington football team is desperate for more fans to go to games this year. This is a big mission statement for the club. Get more people at FedEx Field, get more people to enjoy their experiences at FedEx Field. And what went down this past Friday night, Friday Night Football, was a part of this, right? This effort to get more of you at FedEx. Of course, nothing will make you go to FedEx more than the team being good again. And I think the team knows that. But in the meantime, the team is trying to come up with all kinds of ways to entice you to want to go out to FedEx Field. And I thought Friday night was a part of that. And there's nothing wrong with that. You know, free admission, show up, watch a proper training camp practice on a Friday night, have a good time. There were two things that were said on Friday night that were particularly interesting to me. One was by Ryan Fitzpatrick. We'll get to that shortly. But the other was by Ron at his post-practice press conference. And this other thing by Ron has to do with what we were just talking about. So Ron at his post-practice press conference on Friday night on whether he has a feel for where he stands with Washington football team fans in terms of winning them over. I think they're curious. You know, we've piqued their curiosity from last season, and and we've got to get hold of them. Um, I'm telling you, this place can be special. It really can, you know. um, uh, with the fan base that, that, that this, this organization has had for years, you know, being a, being a team that started in 1932 with a lot of tradition history, uh, with, with, you know, five world championships, three of them being Super Bowls uh, under Coach Gibbs. Um, we, want to, we want to be able to get those folks back in the stands and, and, and get them behind us. You know, last year we were a little bit fortunate because, you know, we started kind of slow and it was kind of nice not having fans at the time. But as we started to, to roll and start getting some momentum, it would have been cool, I think, to have those people there, those people who have, you know, because, again, I think we have piqued their interest. Um, I, I think people are curious about, you know, who we can be, and, and it'd be good. I mean, we got a lot of good football players. We're still learning and growing. We're a very young football team. Um, and and I'm, I'm really pleased with that because I think we've got guys in, in the right position, and all they need to do is grow into it. And, uh, you know, our goal is to – our intent is to is to get these folks interested and get them back in the, in the stands and – play some really good football that, that's what we want to do I mean we, we've got a ways to go to get there um, but uh, you know we're going to play hard we're going to play hard so said Ron of you the Washington football team fans quote I think they're curious we've piqued their curiosity from last season end quote and he makes the point that Washington needs to capitalize on that curiosity and the team very much does need to capitalize on that curiosity. But I think that word curious is a fitting word. Too much has gone wrong for this team over the last nearly 30 years. I mean, think about that. 30 years to say that after one season, yes, an NFC East winning season, but also, yes, a seven and nine season, uh, to say that everything has been fixed, especially given that so much of what has gone wrong with the team has taken place off the field. We are years away from being able to truly declare victory for Ron Rivera 
in terms of this culture change for the Washington football team, or whatever it'll be known as years from now. The Washington Belters, perhaps. The Washington Wayfarers, maybe. Who knows? But anyway, no way can we even come close to saying that the necessary change has been achieved. What we can do, and what we do do, especially on this podcast, is monitor, and observe, and track, and comment, and note what's going on. And we're in the midst of that journey. And we can't be sure where the journey is going to lead, but we do like, I know I like, what we're seeing so far. I want to see more. We need to see more. And so I think curious is a fitting word. It's hard to predict what kind of crowds we'll have at Washington home games this coming season. We, of course, have the pandemic factor. Now, personally, I think one of the worst things that we could do is shut everything down again. So I hope that 100% capacity is allowed at FedEx Field for the entirety of this upcoming season. But who knows what the team and PG County and the state of Maryland will end up doing. Who knows how we're doing when it comes to the COVID-19 pandemic as the NFL season goes along. Remember, last NFL postseason, Washington's wildcard loss to the Tampa Bay Buccaneers at FedEx Field ended up being one of the few games without fans in attendance. 10 of the 13 games in the 2021 NFL playoffs had fans in attendance. One of the three games that did not have fans in attendance was that Washington loss to the Bucks at FedEx Field in the wildcard round. So we'll see what is allowed to take place at FedEx Field this upcoming season. But of course, another big factor in terms of attendance at Washington football team home games this coming season is where the fan base is at. Attendance at Washington home games by actual Washington fans has been bad for years. Everybody knows it. The idea that that magically changes this coming season is naive. Uh, This is a process. I think Ron knows that. I think the team knows that. And I think you as a Washington football team fan are right to still be skeptical, to still have some doubts, but at the same time, be curious. Like, I don't think you're a sap if you're curious. Like I said, I'm curious. The other particularly interesting Washington football team thing that was said on Friday night came to us from none other than Ryan Fitzpatrick, a.k.a. Ryan Fitzmagic, a.k.a. Yolo Fitz a.k.a. Washington's likely QB1 for the 2021 season. So Fitzpatrick spoke with Julie Donaldson and D'Angelo Hall of the Washington Football Broadcast Network during Friday Night Football. Fitzpatrick got asked a question by D. Hall about why Fitzpatrick feels like he's the right QB1 for Washington right now. And Fitzpatrick's answer was very telling. Here was the exchange. Why do you feel like you're the guy to help lead this football team right now? Well, I think it's a young team, first of all. So I think they need somebody with experience. I think my career, the road hasn't been easy to get to where I am right now. But I am telling you, without a doubt, physically I feel good. But I am 100% better than I have ever been right now. And I think the last four years, I've just been on an upward trend. And you can look at the stats and, you know, that'll show it to you. But... Physically, I just feel good. My mind is good. And I just feel like I'm at a great point in my career right now to go out and have my best year ever. So how about that right there from Ryan Fitzpatrick? Quote, I am telling you, without a doubt, physically, I feel good, but I'm 100% better than I have ever been right now. End quote. Here was that again. I am 100% better than I have ever been right now. Yeah, that, my friends, is a confident quarterback. That, my friends, is a quarterback who has seen it all, 
done it all, been called everything under the sun, and now has a belief in himself like never before. Now, that's a statement that could come back to haunt Ryan Fitzmagic uh, if he's terrible this coming season, if he throws a bunch of killer picks this coming season. Uh, he will be mocked, ridiculed, derided. You know, that's a strong statement. Quote, I'm 100% better than I have ever been right now. End quote. He has a game against the Dallas Cowboys or the Philadelphia Eagles or the New York Giants with no touchdown passes versus four interceptions. Uh, yeah, people are going to come back and say, uh, what happened to you being 100% better than you ever have been? Uh, but Fitzpatrick saying what he said also is based on fact. And we've talked about this on the podcast. Ryan Fitzpatrick's three best seasons legitimately have been his last three seasons. He has been top eight in the NFL in ESPN's total QBR in each of the last two regular seasons. He finished the 2018 regular season at number one in the NFL in yards per pass attempt at 9.6. Fitzpatrick's three highest graded regular seasons for pro football focus have been his last three regular seasons, 2018, 2019, and 2020. No, he's not elite. No, he's not a long-term answer for Washington at quarterback. Yes, he does throw picks. Yes, he has been on a bunch of teams. All of that is true and shouldn't be dismissed. But what's also true, what's undeniable, what's irrefutable is that Ryan Fitzpatrick comes to Washington having played the best football of his career over the last three seasons. And if that's the Fitzpatrick on display for Washington this coming season, then the 2021 season will be a good season for our Washington football team. Nothing matters more for the Washington football team this coming season than the quarterback play being better. If the quarterback play is appreciably better than what the play was last season, okay, and what the play was last season overall was abysmal, then Washington is going to have a good season this year. Fitzpatrick is the key to the season. People can get cute in all kinds of ways in terms of, well, this matters. Well, that matters. Well, this guy is an X factor. That guy is an X factor. Fine. But nothing matters more in football than quarterback. And nobody matters more on the Washington football team this coming season than the starting quarterback. And every indication right now is that that guy is Ryan Fitzpatrick. So maybe the best part of the Friday night practice at FedEx Field was Fitzpatrick connecting with Terry McLaurin on multiple deep completions, including a big one at the end of practice. Although a lot of people will tell you that one at the end of practice was basically a work. Uh, The defense totally gave up on that play. I think the idea was to send the fans home happy with a big connection between the QB1 and the WR1. And that's fine. If the Washington football team purposely allowed that play to happen, uh, that's okay. It's forgiven if the defense allows something like that at a Friday night practice in the middle of August, okay? Like, you're allowed to concede one play in one practice like that, especially at a feel-good event like that Friday night football event ended up being. But making a big deal out of plays in training camp practices, yes, can be silly, but it is okay to, like, note these plays, you know, like, I don't think it's a terrible thing to say, well, you know, this guy has looked good, understanding that these are just practice plays. The notion of Ryan Fitzpatrick this coming season helping to take Terry McLaurin's game to an even higher level is not far-fetched. You know, take a look at how Devontae Parker's numbers exploded over the last two seasons with Fitzpatrick playing for the Miami Dolphins. Here was Ron Rivera at his post-practice press conference on Friday night on the rapport that is building between Fitzpatrick and McLaurin. Well, you know, you, you kind of seen it. Um, you know, Fitz has been working with, with a lot of those guys, and, and, and you really see the, uh, the, uh, the synergy between the two of them. You know, they're, they're, they, they, they seem to, 
to get some of the things down, you know, some of those looks, some of those hand signals that, that you want um, that shows that uh, they're on the same page. And, and that's important. It, it'll be important when we get into the season. And, you know, Terry can come back and say, hey, look, this guy's playing me this way or that way. And Fitz will tell him, hey, if we get this, let's do this. So, you know, that's what you want because, uh, again, it's, you know, we talk about it because a lot of times people talk about, oh, you know, when you play together with guys so long, you know, you, you don't have to say anything. They know what you're thinking, and that's what we want to get to, get to that kind of situation with those guys. Yeah, well, while we're talking Fitzpatrick, McLaurin, and Washington's passing game, Deami Brown flashed at the Friday night practice at FedEx Field. So Washington took Deami Brown with the team's second, third-round pick in the 2021 NFL Draft out of North Carolina. A lot of excitement when it comes to Deami Brown for this upcoming season. He is a deep threat. Deami Brown may well be Washington's best deep threat since Deshaun Jackson. Uh, Deami in the 2019 season for Carolina averaged 20.27 yards per catch. Deami in the 2020 season for Carolina averaged 19.98 yards per catch. And let's go advanced here. Deami for Pro Football Focus on go routes over the 2019 and 2020 seasons ranked tied for first among all FBS receivers with 15 receptions and eight touchdown receptions and ranked first with 606 receiving yards. This guy quantifiably was one of the best deep threats in college football over the last two seasons, and now he's on our team, the Washington football team. Ron at his post-practice press conference on Friday night on how Deami Brown is doing. Well, uh, again, he's a young guy that's, uh, you know, one of those young guys I'm talking about. This guy has got an opportunity to, to really kind of step into the into the forefront for us and be a big part of what we want to do offensively. You know, he's got a specific skill set that, that's going to help open up some other things. He's going to help support some of his teammates, you know, uh, uh, with the guys that we have. Um, just adding some more speed is going to be, be huge, you know. Um, he's a guy that I think can, can really help offset um, some of the things that Terry's had to deal with. Uh, he can help open things up for Logan. He's going to help Curtis out. Uh, Adam's going to be a big part of that as well. And then the running game. So, you know, when, when you have the, that kind of threat, people have to take you seriously. So, you know, he's going to fit very nice into that room. Yes, he will. Now, Deami Brown has said that he doesn't want to be known as just a straight line guy. How has Deami Brown been doing with other routes? He's not just the deep ball, but catching those, those quick slants or darts um, and then sticking his foot in the ground and getting vertical is pretty impressive. Um, uh, you know, the threat of him going deep, and, and, and so people tend to, to, to kind of loosen a little too much, and you see him making those breaks on those digs coming across the middle. So he's got a skill set because of the speed, but I think it adds to, to his game a little bit more, which is going to help us. Big passing plays, explosive passing plays come in many forms, come in many ways. Everyone listening understands that. Here's the bottom line. Washington needs more of those plays, okay? Washington has been so bad in recent seasons when it comes to authoring explosive plays, especially explosive passing plays. Sharpfootballstats.com defines an explosive passing play as a passing play for at least 15 yards. Washington in the 2020 regular season, I, I can't even say this without laughing, was number 31 in the NFL in explosive passing play rate at six. 0.15%. There are 32 teams in the National Football League. Our team, the Washington football team, last regular season was number 31 out of those 32 teams in explosive passing play rate per sharpfootballstats.com. 
at 6.15%. 40 explosive passing plays divided by 650 total passing plays. That is pathetic. That is atrocious. That cannot be the case this coming season. I do not believe that anything close to that will be the case for this coming season. A, because Ryan Fitzpatrick, a notorious downfield thrower, is set to be Washington's QB1. But B, this receiving core is loaded with talent. Now, we'll see if this receiving core delivers on that talent. But in Terry McLaurin and Curtis Samuel and Cam Sims and Deyami Brown especially, you have four guys right there very capable of helping to author explosive passing plays. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. So don't look now, but we have another COVID-19 situation going on with the Wizards. The damn Washington Wizards. Yes, that team, our team. Their season ended weeks ago, and yet still, here we are, the Wizards dealing with with another COVID-19 situation. So the Wizards' Summer League season was supposed to begin on Sunday night, but the game ended up being postponed due to the Wizards' COVID-19 situation. The NBA Summer League game scheduled for Sunday at 8 p.m. Eastern between the Wizards and Indiana Pacers postponed in accordance with the NBA's health and safety protocols because of ongoing contact tracing within the Wizards. The Wiz did not have enough available players to proceed with the game against the Pacers. In the meantime, we have the Wizards' five-team mega trade having become official. The Wizards' acquisition of Spencer Dinwiddie and trading away of Russell Westbrook finally became official on Friday night. As had been reported, everything ultimately was part of one mega trade, a five-team blockbuster trade. Wizards, Los Angeles Lakers, Brooklyn Nets, San Antonio Spurs, and Indiana Pacers. The trade is extremely complicated. Nothing in sports is as needlessly complicated as the NBA offseason. But the principal aspects of the trade from a Wizards perspective are the following. A, 
The Wizards acquired unrestricted free agent point guard Spencer Dinwiddie in a sign-and-trade with the Nets. The Wizards sent a 2024 second-round pick and the right to swap 2025 second-round picks to the Nets. The contract for Dinwiddie, reportedly, is a three-year, $62 million deal. B, the Wizards sent Russell Westbrook and three second-round picks, those in 2023, 2024, and 2028, to the Lakers for Contavious Caldwell-Pope Montrez Harrell and Kyle Kuzma. C, the Wizards acquired Aaron Holiday, the draft rights to Isaiah Todd and cash considerations from the Indiana Pacers. And D, the Wizards sent Chandler Hutchison and a 2022 second round pick to the San Antonio Spurs. Uh, You got all that? Uh, Good. There will be a quiz at the end of the show. I have three main takeaways as a Wizards fan from this trade. Takeaway number one, the Wizards now are certainly deeper than they had been in recent seasons. But I'm not convinced that the Wizards are substantially closer to being a true Eastern Conference contender. And ultimately, that's what this is about. This is not about building up the Wizards into being a 43-win team again. This is about building up the Wizards into being a legitimate top three seed in the Eastern Conference. Now, if you tell me that Wes Unsell Jr., as the Wizards' new head coach, is going to transform the Wizards into a great defensive team, okay then maybe what the Wizards now have will be good enough to vault the Wiz into being a top three seed in the East. But that's a huge ask. Wes Unsell Jr. in year one as Wizards head coach getting this team to be a great defensive team. Otherwise, the Wizards now have one legitimate superstar, Bradley Beal, and then a bunch of nice players, but no other true superstar. Historically, it's very hard to win anything of consequence in the NBA without multiple superstars. And by the way, I may be generous in calling Bradley Beal a superstar. Like Beal to me is say a top 20 player in the NBA. He's not a top 10 player in the NBA and he may well not even be a top 15 player in the NBA. So if you define NBA superstar as a truly elite player in the league, well, that's not Bradley Beal. He's not an elite player. So I guess it depends on how liberal you want to be with the label of superstar. But whatever the case may be, the Wizards at most have one superstar, not multiple superstars. And it's hard to win anything of consequence in the NBA without multiple superstars. I'm interested in hearing from Tommy Shepard on the thought process here, especially considering that it seems as if the Wizards believe that Beal will be staying with the Wiz beyond this coming season. Remember, he next offseason can opt out of his contract and the Wizards this October can offer Beal another monster extension. Now, Monday evening at 6, we're supposed to have the Spencer Dinwiddie introductory press conference. Presumably, Tommy Shepard will be speaking at that. So hopefully we can get some questions and answers going on here when it comes to Shepard and the thinking behind what's happening with the Wizards right now. Takeaway number two from the Wizards five-team mega trade. Tommy Shepard ultimately did some job with the albatross that was the John Wall contract. We can debate where the Wizards are at right now. What can't be debated is that Shepard did a really nice job ultimately with the burden that had been that John Wall Supermax contract extension. So the Wizards this past December 2nd traded Wall and a protected first round pick to the Houston Rockets for Russell Westbrook. Wall had signed that Supermax contract extension with the Wiz all the way back in July 2017. The Supermax was a four-year extension worth $171.131 million. 
The extension kicked in with the 2019-2020 season. Here is what Wall was owed at the time of the trade. For the 2020-2021 season, $41.255 million. For next season, $44.311 million. And for the 2022-2023 season, $47.367 million. The John Wall contract was slash is legitimately one of the worst contracts in pro sports. And why is it that DC is constantly stuck with candidates for worst contract in pro sports? Albert Hainsworth, Gilbert Arenas, John Wall, Steven Strasburg. Anyway, so Tommy Shepard ultimately essentially turned Wall and a protected first round pick into one season of Russell Westbrook and Spencer Dinwiddie. Kentavious Caldwell-Pope, Montrez Harrell, Kyle Kuzma, Aaron Holiday, and Isaiah Todd. Westbrook, yes, remains a flawed player, but also, yes, was a triple-double machine for the Wizards this past season and helped to get them back to the NBA playoffs, for whatever that's worth. Dinwiddie, KCP, Harrell, Kuzma, and Holiday all can play to varying degrees. There are things to like about each player. Dinwiddie in the 2019 2020 regular season was an elite scorer. KCP is a good three-point shooter. KCP this past regular season shot 41% on threes, and he can play defense. KCP this past regular season, number four among all shooting guards in the NBA in ESPN's defensive real plus minus metric. Uh, Harrell, he's one of the best bench players in the NBA. Montrez Harrell was the NBA's sixth man of the year for the 2019 2020 regular season. He comes to the Wizards as one of just two players in the NBA to have averaged at least 10 points per game over the last four regular seasons while having made no more than five starts in each of those regular seasons. Kuzma can score, and Holiday, over his first three NBA regular seasons, has shot 37.2% on threes. Now, it's not as simple as the Wizards just getting these guys for Westbrook because the Wizards in this five-team mega trade also dealt Chandler Hutchison a bunch of second-round picks and cash considerations, but you get the idea. Shepard turned a terrible situation, the John Wall Supermax contract extension, into a bunch of viable players. That's a great job by Tommy Shepard, and the Wizards now have financial flexibility for the first time in years, as the Wizards right dealt Westbrook with him having an albatross of a contract in which he still could have two more seasons. This coming season is the final season before Westbrook can opt out of his contract, but Westbrook has a $47.063 million player option for the 2022-2023 season. Westbrook opting out seems unlikely, Uh, although you never know. But like whatever you think about what this trade does for the Wizards right now, think about where the Wizards were just nine months ago in terms of John Wall and what's going to happen with Wall. And the Wizards have this albatross of the John Wall Supermax contract extension. And here we are now, and the Wizards are in a much better position in that regard. Takeaway number three from the Wizards' five-team mega trade. The NBA's tampering rules are a joke. So we know that Russell Westbrook wanted out from the Wizards. Wizards owner Ted Leonsis has confirmed this. He did so in a piece by ESPN NHL insider Emily Kaplan that came out last Tuesday. The piece was on the Capitals re-signing of Alex Ovechkin and said Ted in the piece, quote, we had a superstar player with the Wizards 
he had an opportunity and wanted to be traded to the Lakers. And I was dealing with that as we were announcing Alex, as in Ovechkin's five-year, $47.5 million contract extension. I couldn't help but self-reflect on what a difference it is. Here's a great player in Russell Westbrook, played in OKC, wanted to be traded, went to Houston, wanted to be traded, came to DC, wanted to be traded, and is now in LA. He's an unbelievably great person and an unbelievably great player, but that's the difference between the NBA and the NHL, I suppose. End quote. Something that is impossible for me to ignore about Westbrook wanting out from the Wizards is the tampering aspect of all of this. So did you see what ESPN reported on Saturday? ESPN on Saturday reported that the NBA has opened investigations into possible tampering violations involving two sign-and-trade deals completed in free agency in recent days. The Chicago Bulls acquisition of Lonzo Ball of the New Orleans Pelicans and the Miami Heat's acquisition of Kyle Lowry of the Toronto Raptors. We then had this. NBA insider Mark Stein on Saturday afternoon tweeted, quote, players huddling like Russ, LeBron, and AD did before the Lakers slash Wiz trade does not typically lead to NBA intervention because the league says it can't police player-to-player discussion, end quote. So the obvious implication from Stein there is that LeBron James and Anthony Davis of the Lakers recruited Russell Westbrook to ask to be traded to the Lakers while he was still on the Wizards. Now, I'm sure that the Wizards aren't exactly heartbroken over Westbrook having wanted out, given that he was due to make $44.21 million for this coming season. And like I said, $47.06 million for the 2022-2023 season if he doesn't exercise a player option for that season. But what if the Wizards had not wanted to part ways with Westbrook? What if the Wizards had wanted to build around Bradley Beal and Russell Westbrook for the next few seasons? How is this fair to the Wizards? Why is tampering engineered by players just accepted in the NBA? Why is it just accepted in the NBA that players can tamper, but teams can't? And think about this. Can't teams, i.e. owners and executives, just tell their players to tamper with players who the teams want? Like, can't teams just have the players do the tampering for the teams? Like, the whole thing is ridiculous. No league fears its players as much as the NBA does. No league caters to its players, especially its superstars, as much as the NBA does. And this is a classic example. Hey, you want to tamper? Go ahead. Nothing we can do. Uh, But bottom line, I do really like how Tommy Shepard ultimately was able to navigate the John Wall Supermax contract extension with the Wizards. I give Shepard a lot of credit in that regard. Although still, the question remains, how much better exactly are the Wizards? Now, by the way, the Wizards on Saturday morning officially announced the resigning of Howell Neto, who had been an unrestricted free agent. So he'll be back, presumably, as the Wizards' backup point guard playing behind Spencer Dinwiddie. The Neto news was reported last Wednesday night. I'm not convinced that the Wizards are that much better now after all of these maneuverings, but we'll see. You know, so much of this is going to depend on Wes Unsell Jr. getting the Wizards to be much better defensively. The damn Washington Wizards! Yes, those guys. 
All right, let us talk Nationals, and they lost 2-3 or three at the Atlanta Braves over the weekend, an 8-4 loss on Friday night, a 3-2 win on Saturday night in a game in which the Nats overcame a 2-0 ninth-inning deficit by scoring three runs in the top of the ninth, and then a 5-4 loss on Sunday afternoon. So the Nats, since winning 14-17 of 17 to get to 40-38, and 38 are just 10-24. and 24. Yes, the sell-off has had a lot to do with this, trading away eight players for 12 prospects. But the truth is, this team was a losing team well before the sell-off. Since the start of July, the Nats have lost 24 of 34 games. And that is a harsh reality. Nats now 50-62 and 62 on the season with a run differential of minus 39, by far the worst in the National League East. But as I have said, the Nats season is no longer to be looked at through the prism of wins and losses. The Nats season now must be viewed as, say, the Orioles season should be viewed. Forget the outcomes, focus on the individuals. And so that's what we do on this podcast when it comes to the Nats now. Whether the Nats end up losing 80 games or 85 games or 90 games doesn't matter. What matters is what the potential building blocks do. And that's what we focus on. And so with that in mind, I present to you what Josiah Gray did on Saturday night. Nothing matters more from the Nats weekend than what Josiah Gray did on Saturday night. Josiah Gray per MLB Pipeline is the Nats number two prospect. He is the number 40 overall prospect in baseball. He and catcher Cabert Ruiz are the two prize prospects in a crop of four prospects acquired by the Nats from the Los Angeles Dodgers in the trading away of Max Scherzer and Trey Turner. Now, two Fridays ago, July 31st. Oh, by the way, did you see or hear what Trey Turner said over the weekend? The new Dodgers second baseman slash shortstop, because yes, he is playing second base primarily here for the Dodgers on Saturday. Uh, I don't know if it's that he took shots at the Nats, but he certainly did not come off all warm and fuzzy with the Nats. So as I've said, clearly the Nats were not interested in signing Trey Turner to a long-term contract. Said Trey on Saturday, quote, I said I would talk about an extension whenever and waited for that to happen, and it didn't happen. So I've been told a lot of things over the last two years. And for me, actions speak louder than words, end quote. Remember what MLB insider John Heyman reported this past Tuesday morning. He tweeted, quote, the Nats' last offer to Trey Turner was six years, about $100 million in March 2020. Nats people suggested publicly and privately they planned to make another offer last spring, but ultimately didn't do so, end quote. Look, I think Trey Turner's feelings are hurt. I don't blame the Nats one bit for not wanting to sign him to the mega money that it's almost certainly going to take to sign him to a long-term deal. As I have said repeatedly, these long-term big money contracts rarely work out in baseball in terms of long-term big money contracts for guys in their 30s. Trey Turner, after next season, in other words, in his first free agent season, will be in his age 30 season. This is his age 28 season. He's under contract next year, age 29 season, and then he's due to be a free agent after next season. So that first free agent season is his age 30 season. And that's a flashing neon sign of buyer beware because these big money contracts for guys in their 30s rarely work out. So I think the Nats recognized this. I think the Nats decided perhaps long ago they weren't going to pay Trey whatever it was going to take to keep Trey. And I think Trey has picked up on this. And so he has said, you know, the heck with them. So that's fine. I don't blame him for feeling that way. 
But I think everything you keep hearing and reading is that the Nats didn't try hard at all to sign Trey Turner to a long-term contract extension. That's being made crystal clear here. And uh, one more item of evidence has been added to the pile via these Trey Turner comments on Saturday. Anyway, Josiah Gray, Saturday night, 3-2 Nats win at the Braves. He was terrific. That's the takeaway from this Nats weekend more than anything else. Josiah Gray, who hopefully is going to be a number one or number two starter for the Nats for years to come. So far, so good over two starts with the Nats. He on Saturday night allowed two runs, just one earned in five innings. He had 10 strikeouts. He gave up four hits, a homer, a double, and two singles. He issued two walks into wild pitch. He threw 51 strikes versus 31 balls on 82 pitches. But the big item from this game for Josiah Gray was 10 strikeouts in just five innings. The 10 strikeouts were great. Gray recorded three swinging strikeouts of all three of the batters he faced in a perfect bottom of the second inning. Dansby Swanson, Adam Duvall, and Jock Peterson. You know, Gray in his Nats debut, that 7-5 loss to the Philadelphia Phillies at Nationals Park last Monday night, uh, was good in the game, one run in five innings, but he only had two strikeouts. He had 10 strikeouts in this game on Saturday night. And now you look at what Gray has done in his brief time at the major league level. He had made a couple of appearances for the Dodgers prior to being traded. Uh, Josiah Gray now has 25 strikeouts in 18 major league innings. That's outstanding. Now that's a small sample size, of course, so we need to see a lot more here. But after location, the second most important thing that a pitcher can do is strike guys out. The ability to miss bats is huge because you avoid the variance of the batted ball. If Josiah Gray is a legit major league strikeout pitcher, that bodes so well for him being an effective major league pitcher. So loved what we saw from Josiah Gray on Saturday night. He seems to be a legitimate building block here for the Nats. Now, of course, there is no more significant building block for the Nats than Juan Soto. He is the franchise uh, now more than ever. And he did not start any of these games at the Braves over the weekend. Soto did not start any of the three games in the series due to tweaking his right knee while running the bases in the bottom of the ninth of the 7-6 loss to the Philadelphia Phillies at Nationals Park last Thursday. Davey Martinez in his pregame press conference on Saturday said that an MRI exam on Soto's right knee came back negative, and Soto did pinch hit in the 3-2 win at the Braves on Saturday night. He drew a pinch, six-pitch walk in the top of the sixth. But then Davey in his pregame press conference on Sunday morning said that Soto was still having some difficulties with his right knee. Soto did serve as a pinch hitter in the 5-4 loss at the Braves on Sunday afternoon, but he struck out on five pitches for the second out in the top of the eighth inning. And so guess who was the Nats starting right fielder on Sunday afternoon? Josh Bell. Yes, that Josh Bell. The Nats everyday first baseman, Josh Bell. He had actually been practicing in the outfield recently. He actually at one time was a major league right fielder with some frequency, uh, but that time didn't last for very long, and that time was a while ago. Josh Bell had not played a position other than first base in a major league regular season game since 2016. Yes, 2016, but Bell, and yet another sign of the Nationals' lack of positional versatility this season— uh, ended up starting in right field for the Nats on Sunday afternoon. He was a Nats starting right fielder at number four batter. Truth be told, him being in right didn't end up being that much of a factor in the game. He saw very little defensive action. 
uh, went one for five with a single and a strikeout, left five men on base. So it wasn't a great day for Josh Bell uh, at the plate. He was an at starting first baseman and cleanup batter in each of the first two games in the series. Had a good game on Saturday night. Bell in that 3-2 win at the Braves on Saturday night. Leadoff opposite field double to left field in the top of the second inning and a leadoff six-pitch walk in the Nats three-run ninth despite having been down in the count at one point. Oh, two. Gerardo Parra, by the way, was an ad starting right fielder in games one and two. He served as a pinch hitter in game three. So Gerardo Parra, to me, is someone who needs to be barely playing down the stretch of this season. Everyone loves the baby shark, but the baby shark is not a potential building block. Remember, his success with the Nets in 2019 came off him having been designated for assignment by the San Francisco Giants, and then Parra didn't even play in the majors last season. He got called up from the minors earlier this season. And, you know, he's had a few moments here and there, but overall, he's not doing well. Para in that pinch hitting spot in the 5-4 loss at the Braves on Sunday afternoon struck out on four pitches to begin the top of the ninth inning. Para as a number five batter in the 3-2 win at the Braves on Saturday night, 0 for 3 with two strikeouts. He struck out on three pitches with Josh Bell on second and no outs in the top of the second inning. Gerardo Parra for the season is batting 235 with a 275 on base percentage and a 365 slugging percentage. Those numbers are really bad. Parra should not be out there with any real frequency. Uh, but, you know, in part because of the Soto injury, Parra was that Nat starting right fielder in games one and two. Now, an older Nat who did have a good weekend was Ryan Zimmerman. Zim had a productive series, including starting a game at first base for the first time Since July 31st, yeah, Zimmerman had not started any games for the Nationals uh, this month until Sunday afternoon. Uh, We had Bell and Wright. We had Zim at first base. He was an at starting first baseman and number three batter in the 5-4 loss at the Braves on Sunday afternoon. And Zim, three for five with two doubles, a single, and two RBI. He had three two-out hits, a two-out full count opposite field double to right field in the top of the first, a two-out full count opposite field RBI single to right center field in the Nats two run seventh despite having been down in the count at 1.02 and a two out RBI double to left center field in the top of the ninth despite having been down in that count at 1.12. Zim in the 3-2 win at the Braves on Saturday night had a big pinch hit, a pinch first pitch double to left field in the Nationals three-run ninth inning. So Zimmerman on the season has an on-base percentage of just 286. That's not good. He is, though, slugging 474, and he has just two fewer doubles than Juan Soto has. Zimmerman has 11 doubles on the year. Soto has 13, and actually Josh Bell only has 15 doubles. Now, those doubles totals tell you a lot more about Soto and Bell in terms of their lack of production when it comes to doubles this season. But still, it's impressive that Zimmerman only has two fewer doubles than Soto and just four fewer doubles than Bell this season, given the disparity in playing time between Zimmerman and Soto and Zimmerman uh, and Bell. But Zimmerman is, wait for it, not a young building block. And so what mattered more from the Nats weekend than what Zimmerman did is what the younger guys did. You know, like to me, I think Ryan Zimmerman's probably going to retire after this season. That's the sense I get listening to Zimmerman speak. And if he doesn't retire, I think this could become uh, an interesting dilemma here because, you know, everyone loves Zim, but is it really in the Nats' best interest to have Ryan Zimmerman back for another season? You know, the lack of positional versatility. He can only play first base. He can't, you know, be anything close to like a regular starter. So somebody gets hurt, you know, you still have to worry about playing Zimmerman on an everyday basis. And, you know, he's not productive like he used to be, okay? I mean, I mentioned that on base for the season, 286, 
that's not good. When it came to the Nationals' younger players in this series, uh, the results for the younger guys were mixed. We did see Victor Robles as in that starting center fielder in two of the three games. Uh, he was a starter in games one and three, came off the bench in game two. His best game of the series was the bench game, the 3-2 win at the Braves on Saturday night. Robles in that game, a pinch went out first pitch double to left field in the top of the eighth and a two out first pitch single in the top of the ninth inning. He also did have an RBI single in the 5-4 loss at the Braves on Sunday afternoon. A went out first pitch RBI single to left center field in the Nats two-run seventh inning. But he also had multiple uh, head-scratching instances in the Nationals' one-run third. He bunted the ball into the air for a force out at second base for the first out. And then he's on first base and he nearly gets picked off. Now, thankfully, he didn't. But, you know, Robles, who's had multiple base running blunders this season, almost had another one in that third inning on Sunday afternoon. He also went 0 for 4 with a couple of strikeouts in the 8-4 loss at the Braves on Friday night. I still want Robles playing every game as an ad starting center fielder, a number one batter. And that's have got to see if Victor Robles can be the everyday center fielder moving forward. I'm not sure that there's much of a need here to share time with Andrew Stevenson either. You know, Stevenson was an ad starting center fielder, a number one batter in the win on Saturday night. 0 for 4 with a strikeout, left three men on base. People talk about Robles not having a very good season offensively, and he's not having a very good season offensively. Uh, take a look at Andrew Stevenson's numbers on the year. Stevenson's OPS for the season is just 583. Uh, Carter Keyboom was an at starting third baseman in all three games in the series, but he only had one hit the entire series. It was a run scoring hit. Keyboom in the 8-4 loss at the Braves on Friday night. A one-out RBI single to left field on a 1-2 pitch in the top of the fourth. Uh, but Keyboom over the final two games of the series, a combined 0 for 7 with a walk and three strikeouts. Luis Garcia was an at starting second baseman in all three games in the series. He in the 8-4 loss at the Braves on Friday night did have an RBI double, two out first pitch, ribby double in the top of the ninth inning. Did have a couple of hits in the 5-4 loss at the Braves on Sunday afternoon, two for four with a double and a single. And then there was an at catching situation. Tres Barrera was an at starting catcher, a number seven batter in games one and three. Riley Adams who the Nats got from the Toronto Blue Jays in the trade of Brad Hand was the Nats starting catcher and number eight batter in game two. Barrera did not have a very good series, had a big defensive screw up in the 8-4 loss at the Braves on Friday night, committed a crucial two-out catcher's interference error in a three-run Braves fifth as his glove made contact with Jorge Soler's bat as Soler swung. But how about Riley Adams in the 3-2 win at the Braves on Saturday night? One for three with a huge two-run homer and an impressive walk. So the homer was the thing. Adams smashing a two-out first pitch go-ahead two-run homer to the upper deck in left field of Braves closer Will Smith in the top of the ninth for a 3-2 Nats lead. The homer going a projected 412 feet per stat cast, which was late in delivering the data. Apparently, they couldn't find the baseball. The homer sure seemed to go a lot farther than 412 feet, but that was some shot by Riley Adams. His first hit as a Nat, his first major league homer. I mean, that was a great job by Riley Adams in that spot. And I referenced the impressive walk, a leadoff 10-pitch walk in the top of the sixth inning for Riley Adams in that win on Saturday night. So like I said, mixed results for the Nats' potential building blocks uh, in losing two or three at the Braves. So Patrick Corbin was the national starting pitcher in the 5-4 loss at the Braves on Sunday afternoon. And he ultimately was bad again. Five runs in six innings. Now, there's more to it than just that. He looked good for stretches in the game. You know, he got off to a rather good start. He was very pitch efficient over the first few innings. And some of the final numbers weren't that bad. He only gave up five hits 
Uh, he did have five strikeouts versus one walk. He did throw 45 strikes versus 23 balls. But three of the five hits that he gave up were costly two-out extra base hits. Two two-out, two-run homers, and a two-out RBI double. Corbin allowed two runs in the bottom of the third on a weekly hit two-out single by the Braves starting pitcher Max Freed on a one-two pitch. So yeah, Corbin got done dirty by the variance of the batted ball with that weekly hit single. But that single was off the bat of the Braves starting pitcher Max Freed whom Corbin had down an account at 1.12. You're Patrick Corbin. You can't put away the opposing starting pitcher when he's down 1-2. And then came a big blow, a two-out, two-run homer by Ozzie Albies to center field, the homer going a projected 412 feet per stat cast. Corbin allowed three runs in the bottom of the six on a leadoff seven-pitch walk of Albies, despite him having been down in the count at 1.02. A two-out opposite field RBI double by Austin Riley to right field, and a two-out two-run homer by Adam Duvall to left field for a 5-1 Braves lead. The homer going a projected 415 feet per stat cast. So here we are now for Patrick Corbin. 22 starts this season. He has an ERA of 583. He has a whip of 142. He is allowing a career-worst 199 home runs per nine innings. Patrick Corbin, quantifiably, has been one of the worst pitchers in Major League Baseball this season. This off him having been really bad last season. This is year three of a six-year, $140 million contract. And what continues to perplex me, like I know it perplexes so many of you, is he was so good for the Nats in his first season with the Nets, the 2019 season, during which he was an October hero. Patrick Corbin, what he did as a reliever for the Nats that postseason can never be forgotten. The Nats don't win the World Series in 2019 without Patrick Corbin being used as a reliever, a high leverage reliever, and coming through more often than not. Well, speaking of that, take a listen to what Ryan Zimmerman had to say after Sunday's loss. Zim, during his post-game press conference, was asked about Patrick Corbin struggling again this season. And here's what Zim had to say. I think a lot of people forget. Um, <laughs> he was, uh, for lack of better words, abused in 2019 in the in the playoff run. Um, you know, he did things that he has never done before for us to win that World Series. I think people think that you just recover from that and, come back the next year and everything's fine. Well, you come back the next year and they have the, you know, spring training and then you get shut down and then you have to start up again. Um, you know, I'm not making excuses for, for Pat, but, um, you know, in the beginning of this year, the first 10 or 14 days, whatever it was, he was on the, the COVID stuff. Um, so he basically rehabbed in the big leagues his first three starts of this year. All right. So a few things with that. Ryan Zimmerman is being a very good teammate with what he had to say there. I do always love the thing of, well, I'm not trying to make excuses for the guy. Yes, you are. That whole thing right there was excuse making for Patrick Corbin. That was a soliloquy on excuses for Patrick Corbin. So, you know, <laughs> you saying I'm not trying to make excuses for the guy doesn't absolve you of having made excuses for the guy. Like, that's what you were doing there. You were making excuses for why Patrick Corbin has an ERA of nearly six over 22 starts on the year. To Zimmerman's point, though, about the 2019 postseason, I think it is very harsh to use a word like abused. And Zimmerman does sort of couch it as, for lack of a better phrase, but 
Patrick Corbin was not abused by the Nationals in the 2019 postseason. Patrick Corbin in the 2019 postseason was a starting pitcher who, like many starting pitchers in postseasons past, was utilized as a reliever, a high leverage reliever, because Patrick Corbin is a very good pitcher and the Nationals in 2019 had a terrible bullpen. One of the things I will never forget about the Nationals World Series run in 2019 was Davey Martinez's masterful navigating of the Nationals having this terrible bullpen. Davey, unlike others who had managed the Nationals previously, er, Matt Williams, er, Dusty Baker, said, I'm not using these guys who I don't trust. And so Davey basically cut his bullpen down to two guys, Sean Doolittle and Daniel Hudson, and started using starters as relievers principal among those starters as relievers being Patrick Corbin. And Patrick, to his credit, was really good in that role. And I give him full credit for embracing that role. But the notion that like he was abused, no, he wasn't. Okay. So many starting pitchers over the years have pitched in relief in postseason baseball. That's part of postseason baseball. Now to this thing of he's still recovering from that, or it took him a long time to recover from that. I'm sympathetic to that. I can understand that. I think there is something to that. You know, you talk about high stress innings. There are no innings with more stress than October innings, no doubt. But remember, the 2020 season was a 60-game regular season. Patrick Corbin in the 2020 regular season only threw 65 and two-thirds innings. To whatever extent he was overused, in 2019, uh, that should be negated by his lack of usage in 2020. So it is an excuse to say that like he's still recovering from 2019 or, you know, what happened in 2019 set off a chain of events from which Corbin still hasn't recovered. You know, I'm sympathetic to some of the things that Zimmerman brought up, the shutdown and restart of last year, the COVID-19 situation this year. But ultimately, all of that is, yes, excuse-making. Because Patrick Corbin isn't the only starting pitcher who's had to deal with things like that. And yet he has been, again, quantifiably one of the worst pitchers in baseball this year, 583 ERA. And the fact that he's getting like graded on a curve now to where people are focusing on, well, he did this well, he did that well. Uh, that's all fine and dandy. If you're, you know, Eric Fetty or Joe Ross or somebody like that, you're Patrick Corbin. Again, year three of a six-year, $140 million contract. You know, especially with Steven Strasburg out off surgery to correct thoracic outlet syndrome, especially with Max Scherzer having been traded away. What you really should be getting for Patrick Corbin right now is him stepping forward as your ace. And you're getting the opposite of that from him. Again, the ERA for the season is at 583. The whip for the season is at 142. And he's allowing a career worst 1.99 home runs per nine innings this season. It's not good enough. And I'm sure Patrick knows that. Like, I don't think he's not trying or anything like that. I'm certainly rooting for the guy. But the performance is what it is at this point. Like, I'm not going to sugarcoat this. He's been really bad. And, you know, I respect Zimmerman for being a good teammate. But Patrick was not abused in 2019. And at this point, what happened in 2019 should not be impacting what this guy is doing in 2021. Plenty of pitchers have been leaned on in postseasons past and not struggled like this two years later. Uh, Eric Fetty started the other game for the Nationals in this series loss at the Braves. Fetty started the 8-4 loss at the Braves on Friday night, and he wasn't very good. Five runs, four earned, 
in four and two-thirds innings. He simply allowed too much contact. He gave up eight hits, a double, and seven singles. So there was an element of bad luck in all this. Uh, But he only had three strikeouts, did only issue one walk, did throw 57 strikes versus 36 balls on 93 pitches. But he's another guy who the Nats really need to be better right now. And he's not being better. This was Fetty's seventh start since being reinstated from the 10-day injured list, which he was on due to a left oblique strain. Fetty, over those seven starts, has allowed 26 earned runs in 32 innings. He has gone from having a potential breakout season to now having an ERA well over five on the year. Eric Fetty, over 18 starts this season, has an ERA of 515 and a whip of 141. Understand, John Lester, for all of the grief that I gave him and others gave him, had an ERA during his time with the Nats of 502. Fetty's ERA is 515. Fetty has done worse than Lester has this year if you go by ERA. Not good. The Nats need a guy like Fetty to deliver on his promise, and it's just not happening off, again, some encouraging signs earlier this season. Two other things I want to make mention of. The Nats' bullpen was good in this series, with the exception of one guy in one game. Javi Guerra struggled in the 8-4 loss at the Braves on Friday night, three runs in the bottom of the eighth. But otherwise, the Nats' bullpen did a really good job, especially in the 3-2 win on Saturday night. In that game, four Nats relievers combined for four scoreless innings. Mason Thompson, Ryan Harper, Andres Machado, and Kyle Finnegan. Gabe Klobosic, Klobo, was very good in the 5-4 loss at the Braves on Sunday afternoon. Two scoreless innings, including a perfect bottom of the seventh on six pitches. And, and this is amazing when you think about it, but the truth is the truth. The Nats' best hitter in this series at the Braves ended up being Alcides Escobar. Alcides Escobar is in his age 34 season. The Nats got him on July 3rd from the Kansas City Royals for cash considerations. He had not played in a major league regular season game since the 2018 season, for which he had a minus 2.2 wins above replacement for baseball reference, a minus 2.2 B war. That is awful. And yet, Alcides Escobar in this series at the Braves was the national starting shortstop and number two batter in all three games in the series. And he went five for 12 with two doubles, three singles, and a walk. He now over 130 plate appearances for the Nats this season, has an on-base percentage of 344, okay? If he wasn't doing as he was doing, I would be yelling and screaming about this. Of Why are the Nats starting and batting in the two spot a guy in his age 34 season as the Nats now are basically in rebuild mode for at least the final two months of this season? But this guy is delivering. And he has done such a good job offensively. I think he's done a pretty nice job defensively. He did have a recent stretch in which he had some errors, but he's been better over the last few games. And I give him full credit. Again, he looked shot. He looked done with the Royals in 2018. And here he is now, a 344 on base percentage for the Nats, over 130 plate appearances. All props to Alcides Escobar. Another instance of Mike Rizzo finding a veteran player who looked done and getting incredible mileage out of that guy. It's happened so many times in recent years. Gerardo Parra, Isdrubal Cabrera, Josh Harrison, now Alcides Escobar. All right, Nationals have no game on Monday. They then have a three-game series at the New York Mets, Tuesday through Thursday, the now third-place New York Mets, as they were swept in three games at the Philadelphia Phillies over the weekend. The Mets, who I never trusted as a first-place team, now have lost 9 of 11 and are out of first place. The Phillies are atop 
the National League East at 59 and 53 with a run differential of minus five, uh, such is the state of the NL East this season. And the Braves are in second place, two games behind the Phillies. The Mets are in third place, two and a half games behind the Phillies. All right, it was a bloody, bloody weekend for the Orioles, even by Orioles standards. I mean, we get it by now with the Orioles. They are rebuilding. They are tanking. We're used to the Orioles losing. But man, did they get shredded by the elite of the American League over the weekend. The Orioles swept in three games against the American League-leading Tampa Bay Rays at Oriole Park at Camden Yards. A 10-6 loss on Friday night. A 12-3 loss on Saturday night, a 9-6 loss on Sunday afternoon. The Orioles in this series got outscored 31-15. Yes, Tampa Bay 31, Baltimore 15 over the course of this three-game series at Camden Yards. The O's now are an American League worst 38-72 and with an AO worst run differential of minus 166. Uh, and the Rays, they're now an American League best 68 and 44 with a run differential of plus 121. There can never be enough good things said about the Rays in terms of what they do in maximizing their resources, this microscopic payroll year in and year out, like nobody goes to Rays games in Tampa. The Rays compete in the cauldron that is the American League East, with multiple big money spenders, right? The New York Yankees, the Boston Red Sox, even the Toronto Blue Jays are not immune to spending money. And yet here they are, the little engine that could atop the division again this season, the Tampa Bay Rays. The Rays are the model franchise in baseball right now in terms of baseball operations, all right? Not a model franchise in terms of business operations, but if you're trying to restructure your baseball ops department, If you're trying to set up a truly elite front office, the Rays model is the model to follow. Point blank period with what they do, how they maximize their resources. They really are spectacular in that regard. And then there are the Orioles. Uh, No, the Orioles, look, they're trying to be like the Rays, okay? They're trying to be smart. They've gone all in on analytics. And I do think the O's are on the right path, but it's painful, okay? They get crushed and they got crushed in this series. You know, that 12-3 loss to the Rays, at Camden Yards on Saturday night. That game marked the first time since the Orioles franchise moved to Baltimore that the team gave up at least 10 runs in each of four consecutive games. Because remember, the Orioles lost two or three at the New York Yankees last week, and the two losses in that series came over the final two games of that series. 13-1 loss at the Yankees on Tuesday night, 10-3 loss at the Yankees on Wednesday night. So the Orioles over a four-game stretch Tuesday night through Saturday night lost games 13-1 at the Yankees, 10-3 at the Yankees, 10-6 at home to the Rays, 12-3 at home to the Rays, and then came a close, and I put close in quotation marks, 9-6 loss to the Rays on Sunday afternoon. Uh, Also, there was injury news for the Orioles in this series, and it was not good. Ryan Mountcastle apparently has suffered a concussion. Uh, The O's on Sunday morning put Mountcastle on the seven-day concussion injured list. Uh, Mountcastle in the 10-6 loss on Friday night had a one-out RBI single in the bottom of the first, but he then, in getting caught trying to steal second base, took a hard tag on the side of the head, left the game. 
due to concussion protocol. Now, what was so interesting about this was the following. So replacing Mountcastle in that game on Friday night was Jorge Mateo. He came into the game, served as the Orioles' third baseman for the rest of the game. Jorge Mateo is a unique guy, ultra fast. He came to the O's, though, having been a terrible batter, although he also came to the O's having been considered a bright prospect not that long ago. The O's last Thursday claimed Mateo off waivers from the San Diego Padres. Again, super fast. He at one time was regarded as a highly touted prospect, but he had not done well at the major league level, offensively speaking. 121 career regular season plate appearances, an OPS of just 545, and three walks versus 38 strikeouts. That is putrid. But what happened with Mateo on Friday night? He comes into the game, two out, stand up, RBI triple to center field in the bottom of the fifth and a two out first pitch single in the bottom of the seventh. Now, he did have the ball deflect off him on the Nelson Cruz tie-breaking two-run double in the Rays' five-run eighth. Moron, ex-Oriole Nelson Cruz in just a bit. But Mateo, as the Orioles' starting second baseman in the 12-3 loss to the Rays at Camden Yards on Saturday night, had a big hit in that game. Uh, in the Orioles' three-run third, he had a one-out first-pitch double and a stolen base off which he scored due to a throwing error by Rays catcher Mike Zanino. So Jorge Mateo is the kind of guy on whom the Orioles should be making a waiver claim. Great speed, elite speed. At one time, he was a highly touted prospect. And maybe you know, he somehow figures it out with you. And if he doesn't, it costs you nothing. It was a waiver claim, you know, nothing lost on something like that. Uh, also in this series, Cedric Mullins joined the 2020 club. So Cedric Mullins has been the Orioles' best position player this season by far. He's been the Orioles' everyday starting center fielder at number one batter. And Mullins in a 12-3 loss to the Rays at Camden Yards on Saturday night, went out first pitch, two-run homer in the Orioles' three-run third. And then Mullins in this 9-6 loss to the Rays at Camden Yards on Sunday afternoon, First pitch leadoff homer in the bottom of the first and a walk. And so he now has had a 2020 season, at least 20 home runs, at least 20 stolen bases. He becomes just the seventh player in Orioles history to have a 2020 season. Now, Jonathan Villar actually had a 2020 season just two seasons ago. 2019, he had 24 homers and 40 steals. But prior to him, the previous Orioles to have done a 2020 year, Manny Machado, in 2015. The other Orioles to have authored 2020 seasons, Brady Anderson, who did it three times, Paul Blair, Don Baylor, Reggie Jackson as well. Yeah, Reggie in his lone season with the O's, 1976, 27 homers and 28 steals. But congratulations to Cedric Mullins on that. Also, Austin Hayes had a good series. He was the Orioles starting left fielder at number two batter in all three games. 10-6 loss on Friday night, had a leadoff homer in the bottom of the third, despite having been down in the count of 1.02. He in the 12-3 loss on Saturday night had two singles. He in the 9-6 loss on Sunday afternoon had a two-out RBI single in the Orioles' two-run second and a two-out full count RBI single in the bottom of the fourth inning. So as you probably figured out, the Orioles pitching in this series against the Rays was no good. Uh, There was, though, a good start from Jorge Lopez in the loss on Sunday afternoon. I do want to give Lopez credit for that. He was good for a second consecutive start, two runs in six innings with five strikeouts. The O's in this game on Sunday blew a 5-2 seventh inning lead. So the bullpen was a thing, not the starting pitching, at least on Sunday. Jorge Lopez was good, and this off him having been good in his previous outing, the 7-1 win at the Yankees on Monday night. 
Uh, Lopez in that game tossing five no-hit innings before giving up a full-count leadoff double to Joey Gallo in the bottom of the sixth inning. Lopez ultimately in the game, one run in six innings. Only gave up the one hit. Did issue five walks, a balk, and a hit by pitch. So, I mean, he was not dominant. Had four strikeouts. But uh, still, back-to-back starts here for Lopez. He's done pretty well considering what he had been doing. Lopez over his first 21 starts of the season, an ERA of 619, a whip of 168. But Spencer Watkins struggled in the 12-3 loss on Saturday night, and he was bad for a third consecutive start here. Five runs, four earned in six innings. He gave up eight hits, two homers, four doubles, and two singles. Did have four strikeouts versus no walks, but he also threw a wild pitch. So he's now struggled to varying degrees in each of his last three starts. This off him having done well over his first three starts. What were his first three major league starts? He made his major league debut in a relief appearance for the O's on July 2nd. Spencer Watkins was taken by the Detroit Tigers in the 30th round of the 2014 MLB draft. And then John Means was uh, decent in game one, that 10-6 loss on Friday night. Two runs, one earned in five innings. He gave up eight hits, three doubles and five singles. He also threw just 55 strikes versus 39 balls on 94 pitches. But he also had five strikeouts versus one walk. And ultimately, the run prevention was there. Like I said, two runs, one earned in five innings. Although uh, he was responsible for the unearned run. He committed a miscatch error for an unearned run in a raise two-run second inning. Uh, All right, two other things from the Orioles weekend. First of all, in news that broke late Sunday night, the Orioles have promoted their top prospect, Adley Rutschman, to AAA Norfolk. This off Rutschman on Friday being named as the new number one prospect in all of baseball per MLB Pipeline. So MLB Pipeline on Friday came out with a new list of the top 100 prospects in baseball off removing players who had lost prospect eligibility due to being in the majors. And catcher Adley Rutschman was installed as the new number one prospect in the sport. The previous number one Tampa Bay Rays shortstop Wander Franco no longer eligible for the list. The O's took Rutschman with the number one pick in the 2019 MLB draft out of Oregon State. He had been playing for Double A Bowie this season. He had been killing it for Double A Bowie this season. And now he is being called up to Triple A Norfolk. Uh, this is exciting news. This is obviously the last step before Rutschman is called up to the majors. It doesn't feel like Rutschman will be making his major league debut this season. Although with this guy, I don't dismiss anything. This guy's a phenom. Adley Rutschman this season for Double A Bowie, 271 batting average, 392 on base percentage, 508 slugging percentage, 18 home runs, and now he is at the AAA level. And this is the hope for the Orioles. Adley Rutschman, this is the shining light. This is ultimately what you hope marks the start of the Orioles finally being good again whenever Adley Rutschman makes his way to the major league level. Adley Rutschman was taken by the O's with the number one pick in the 2019 MLB draft out of Oregon State. The other thing I wanted to make mention of is Nelson Cruz, the former Oriole. This really is remarkable to me. The O's signed Nelson Cruz in late February 2014 to a one-year $8 million contract. That is one of the best one-year contracts in Orioles history. Cruz in the 2014 regular season hit a major league leading 40 homers and slugged 525 for an Orioles team that went 96 and 66 
and won the American League East. He was great. That might be, in fact, the single best transaction that Dan Duquette pulled off in his time with the Orioles, signing Nelson Cruz in late February 2014. Well, the O's in the 2014-2015 offseason did not re-sign Nelson Cruz, allowed him to sign with the Seattle Mariners. And, you know, not re-signing Cruz at that time did make sense. He was essentially a one-trick pony, although the one trick was special, hitting homers. But the one trick is something that can be duplicated by others. He was slash is a defensive liability, and he was entering his age 34 season as he was in that offseason. So you're like, all right, we're really going to overpay for a one-trick pony going into his age 34 season. Well, here we are in the 2021 regular season, and Nelson Cruz is still killing it. This is amazing to me. Nelson Cruz was the race starting DH in all three games in this series. He, over the first two games of the series, went four for 11 with two homers, two doubles, and seven RBI. Nelson Cruz, as we speak here on this Monday for the season, has an OPS of 882. And it's something else when you look at the downfall of the Orioles. Because to me, while the downfall was predicated on the farm system just being totally empty of anything for the longest time, especially when it came to pitchers. I think you also can look back on the O's essentially going 0 for 4 in terms of who to re-sign over the course of two off-seasons. The O's in the 2014-2015 off-season did not re-sign a slugger in Cruz, nor a reliever in Andrew Miller, and ended up being wrong on both. The O's in the 2015-2016 off-season re-signed a slugger in Chris Davis and a reliever in Darren O'Day and ended up being wrong on both. So the O's let Cruz and Miller go when hindsight says the O's should have re-signed each guy. The O's re-signed Davis and O'Day when hindsight says the O's should have let each guy walk. It's, I mean, you couldn't have done any worse on those four. And again, I don't kill the O's for not having re-signed Cruz. I certainly didn't kill them at the time. I understood not wanting to pay significant money to a guy who was a one-trick pony and a defensive liability going into his age 34 season. But you look back on it, and clearly the Orioles should have re-signed Nelson Cruz. And there he was over the weekend torturing the Orioles in this three-game sweep by the Rays of the O's at Camden Yards. No game for the O's on Monday. They face the Detroit Tigers in a three-game series at Camden Yards Tuesday through Thursday. All right, my friends, that will do it for you and me for now. Keep the feedback coming. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. On Tuesday's show, episode 119, I'll have a ton for you on the Washington football team as training camp continues, as well as a special guest, Talking Wizards, Wizards insider Chase Hughes of NBC Sports Washington. A lot of changes for the Wizards already this season, but are the Wizards significantly better And what is the team's thinking with Bradley Beal? Have a great rest of your Monday. I'll talk to you on Tuesday. I am 100% better than I have ever been right now.